The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Plunkett and welcome to a special edition of Media Talk coming to you from the Cannes Lion International Festival of Creativity in the south of France. Coming up in the programme, we hear from some of the industry's biggest brains about the future of advertising, including is Dunkin' Donuts really a media company? How brands are now the ones producing content? Shazam's chief executive Rich Riley on the app's new television offering. Ogilvy's Rory Sutherland on persuading clients to take risks with their ad money. And I get some tips from the Diet Coke man. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. So, looking through my delegate bag, I see there's the usual bunch of free pens, flyers, and a couple of disgusting chocolate biscuits. There's one from Samsung here saying that they're a media company. Yep, I buy that. But there's a leaflet too from Dunkin' Donuts. They too claim they're now a media company. And that's something I find, excuse the pun, pretty hard to swallow. Can Dunkin' Donuts really be a media company? I put the question to Thomas Hock Tak Kim, Danielle Fiandaka, and Jonathan Kood of Chael Worldwide. Well, I think we talked today about um, a redefinition of media. So looking at media being uh, any, anywhere that ideas and people actually meet. And I think once you start actually looking at widening that up, anyone has the potential to be a media company. And, and Thomas showed um, his case that he did in Dunkin' Donuts. And in that particular case, Dunkin' Donuts was operating as a media company in terms of actually getting part of someone's routine. Now, I won't make the whole thing about Dunkin' Donuts, but this was an app where it woke you up and then you had a certain number of hours to get to your Dunkin' Donuts store before your, before your app blew up, not, not literally. And then you got vouchers off and you got your donuts and your coffee and what have you. It kind of feels like a sort of a, re- a reverse fitness app. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you run to the store. How could you extend it? Because it seems it's all about a lot of your apps that you demonstrated today at the festival are injecting fun into the kind of the purchase process. Well, I think... Um as Daniele um, mentioned in part of uh, the setup for LifeShare, the framework, meet, play, and share. So I think what you're, what you're recognizing and hitting on there is, is the play element, um, really engaging people, but not just engaging them, pr- trying to provide something that is sort of enriching and enhancing in their life. It is that evolution. It's a, we've you know, gone from um, media taking time away from people to brands asking people to spend time with them sort of on their own channels and hopefully now we're moving into a place where we're creating ideas that are so fun and engaging that people are compelled to allow us to share their lives with them and we're creating things that are useful enough that it's not just about earning their attention or grabbing their attention but finding a place to enhance and enrich their life. For us when we're looking at redefining media all it is about is not constraining ourselves with what has been traditionally seen as media and actually opening up new opportunities and I think once you start opening up that definition as anywhere that people and ideas meet I think creatively it becomes far richer and hopefully we showed that in the work that we actually showed. Yeah and another eye-catch initiative was the uh, the running, I uh, forget the running shoe, forget yes. which brand. Mizuno. Mizuno and you gave those away to kind of opinion formers mm-hmm. and uh, you know bloggers and right. oh, clearly joggers. In, in a sense that kind of struck me as in one sense, it was kind of old-fashioned, ad-funded mm-hmm. programming, almost, in a sense. But it wasn't a TV program. It was right. a pair of shoes. And right. you put your, almost your entire budget right. into giving away free shoes right. and just let the people publicize it for themselves. Several years ago, we would have done four or five print ads and maybe some display ads online. That would have been the entirety of the Mizuna running campaign. And we just would have put it out and hoped people liked the print ads. This was a much more compelling way to engage our audience and to, and to play with them. And we did, you know, encourage them to share, and they were compelled to share. Was there a potential backlash because people were aware they got them for free? So if you start recommending them, people say, "Oh, you know, well, that's that's not a genuine recommendation. You just got those for free." But clearly, that didn't no, happen. No, we 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 didn't put any parameters on what they could say about the experience. So it, it was risky in that sense, in that 
they could have gone out and said, these shoes suck. To my knowledge, that, that never happened. Most people were really excited to try it, thought and gave Mizuno and gave the brand a lot of credit for thinking this way. It's interesting, just for trying a new approach, we got a lot of credit and just people talking about, interesting, like, you know, we sent those direct mail pieces. People kind of freaked out about that. No one's used to getting actually hard copies of anything in the, in the real mail anymore. So we had to call them and ask for their mailing address. So before we sent out a single pair of shoes, people were already tweeting and going on Facebook saying, Mizuno called and asked for my mailing address. What's, what, what's happening? So it just started a kind of a buzz from the get-go. And then as I said during the presentation, the fact that we allowed those initial 600 people to give away another pair of shoes from them to someone in their running circle, that was what they tr actually truly found more rewarding than the free pair of shoes themselves. It's just interesting when you, when you give people a chance to, to be the hero and to, to give stuff uh, away on their own. I'm here with director, writer, and producer, and of course, former much garlanded ad man, Alan Parker. Uh, Sir Alan, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure. Is this like turning the clock back for you, going back 40 years, being at the Cannes Ad Festival? In a way, yeah. I haven't been to the, this particular, I mean, I've been to the film festival, but uh, no, not the advertising. I don't, for some time, yeah, at least 20, 30 years, maybe, yeah. And uh, some of the sessions have been talking about the use of data and analytics and yeah. mobile and you know social media. The, the, these weren't issues that were bothering you much back in the, the end of the not 60s and all, the 70s. No. Will it ever replace proper advertising? Yeah, no, probably not. <laughs> One of the questions they asked was what can advertisers learn from film and what can film learn from advertisers? I mean, yeah. from my point of view, you can clearly see that advertisers, what's the right phrase, borrow or, or, or rip off yeah. uh, ideas from films. But, but how, how do you see the two? Well, I think that uh, when I did advertising commercials, we absolutely, yeah, everything, I mean, I would do miniature feature films. I mean, we had ambitions to do other things. I mean, if there was a really good episode of Monty Python, every single commercial suddenly was like a Monty Python sketch, you know. So we borrowed from everywhere else. On the other hand, with regards to the aesthetics of film, they greatly have borrowed or, or learned from, really, the whole... Uh, with regards to cinematography, production design, editing, all those things have evolved and have influenced feature films. There's no doubt about that. And how have you seen advertising change? Do you think it's changed for the better or for the worse? I mean, I guess the art of storytelling is exactly the same as it was 40 years ago. Storytelling is the same, and uh, from a creative point of view, the whole way in which people are communicated to is obviously changed, so advertising has got to change. It's not changed for the better yet. No one's figured out how to do it. The thing about advertising is no one in the world wants them to be sold to. It's a nuisance. You know, if someone phones you up and tries to sell you something, well, you're not really overly interested. You know, if someone comes to your door and they try and make you a Jehovah's Witness, you say, no, I'm agnostic. You know, you walk past a guy trying to sell you the big issue. You don't want that. So it's intrusive. Advertising interrupts your normal life. And that's the big secret, so certainly with regards to the internet, because no one in the world is going to click onto something in order to have something sold to them. You know, they don't want that. They, in fact, they do the opposite on the internet at the moment, which is an antithesis of, of uh, what was happening when I was doing it because the TV commercial interrupted the main program and you couldn't watch the program. There was no such thing as iPlayer or anything. And so you just had to put up with that commercial. And so your commercial had to be rather good or rather interesting or as interesting as the program material around it, you know. So I think that's the hard thing. That's what the internet has got to figure out how to do. I don't know how they will do it. And today, almost, the ever has to be even better to encourage people not to press the fast forward on their uh, well, the, digital read, video yeah, recorder. I read a thing that the person from Google said that uh, 
you know, it's going to be elective. It's going to be uh, people are are going to want to see it and want, and want to click on it. Well, no one in the world will click on to an advertisement or a commercial. And the example was given was that YouTube had so many hits for some fantastic commercial. Well, that's going to happen. The winner here at Cannes will have a lot of hits. But actually, that's you know the the good commercials, the interesting commercials, the creative commercials have always been a tiny percentage of most of the rubbish which is out there. So you think, well, if that's going to be so, that's really great news for creative agencies. And I think the straightforward, doer, cold marketing-based agencies are the ones who are going to suffer. Things are going to have to be really interesting in, in order to get the attention of people who are going to have to click on it rather than read the news on the left-hand side, you know. And you gave up ads almost overnight when you started, make, when you started making uh, feature films. You know, was there yeah. ever the urge to go back? Well, no one's asked me, so <laughs> it's not happened. I was the first to come from feature films to, to commercials, and, and we were given a rough time because we'd come from that world. It's the opposite now, in so much as that advertising is acceptable and legitimate in a way that it wasn't when we came from it, Ridley Scott and myself and other directors. So I kind of suffered from that period, and now it is very, very different. For me to go back to doing it, you know, I, I could. The hard part now is that when we did it, it was we had the freedom to do and say what we wanted to do. I could improvise, for instance, with actors. You can't do that because now everything has to go through 20 committees. Every single word, every, every verb is approved. And when you're in that kind of straitjacket, that isn't good for free flowing creative work you know, I think that and I'm not really good at looking over my shoulder and saying you know okay for you to 28 marketing people so probably I'd better not do it anymore <laughs> well we should talk films what, what, what do you make of the state of the movie industry right now it's tough the world has for some years has been polarizing into the big special effects expensive films which dominate cinemas and audiences attention Smaller films, independent films are hard to get done. The studios themselves are not even making that middle area type film. Uh, so films like, you know, Godfather, Raging Bull, Midnight Express, they would never get made now because they were in that little middle area. The most creative work, the best writing, the best directing is being done on television. HBO in America are doing by far and away the best work. Uh, much better than the feature film industry. You, you hope it goes in cycles, you know, and I hope they haven't destroyed that audience forever. Why has that shift in the balance of power and quality gone from film to TV? Is it a reflection of the, the lack of ambition among studios and, and the, the bigger budgets in TV? Why do you think that's happened? It's to do with money. The studios have never been interested in the art of film. They've only been interested in making money. And you make much more money by making fewer films with a very, very large budget, you know, which are aimed at a very young demographic, and that's what they've concentrated on, to almost to the exclusion of everything else. So in a way, they've corrupted the audience. The audience is gone. And the audience, therefore, goes on to somewhere else. You, can, that, you know, you still got, you know, thirty, forty, fifty-year-old people who want to see something. So, you know, you get it from TV. And other particular TV shows that you that you've impressed you in recent years? Well, funny enough, I'm the, a great admirer of of the work that HBO have done. But uh, no, I am just a complete junkie for Danish crime uh, noir films. So the killing afraid. the bridge. Oh, just, I can't wait. I, we stopped going out on Saturday night just so we could watch them. But well, have you been tempted to move into TV yourself? You never have done a TV project, is that right? Or, or? No, I'm not tempted to do anything. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I never said it before. But uh, when we were just doing my talk here at Cannes and. Uh, Someone said about the next film, and I said, no, I prefer to go to the pub, which is never a, I've never given as an answer before, but I thought, actually, it's probably my best answer. <laughs> but you have a film project, don't you, in, in gestation? Is that still ongoing? I always do. I've got like th- quite a few things which are 
you know, if I was not so lazy, I could probably get done. But, uh, you know, I've written like four different things over the last few years, four screenplays, which uh, I'm really pleased with, which could be really great movies. The process of having to beg for the money is something that I'm not really able to do anymore. I'm just too old to do all that. You know, I can't put up with all the nonsense. And so that you end up not doing it, you know. Steven Soderbergh said it's just too tough, really, trying to get good films made these days. It's better to do something else. And it's a sad world when a director like Soderbergh and the, and the, the quality and the, and the range of the stuff he's done gives up filmmaking. Yeah. Although he said it a few times, I guess, but it sounds well, like Well, he says he's not, he's not giving up directing, he's going to do other things, which is so. But I mean, no, I completely, utterly, uh, I was saying it a good five years before he said it. You, if you want to be in the feature film industry, you have to be involved with the American film studios. They completely and utterly dominate the financing of films, but most importantly, they dominate the world's distribution of those films. And so if you want your film to be seen in 40 countries, which you know most of my films have been seen in all those different countries, then you have to be, be involved with the American studio system. American studio system at the moment is almost single-handedly aimed at very, very expensive films, special effects films, very, very young audience. No, I hesitate to bring up Mad Men. I don't know if it's one of the shows you're watching, but they've, they've now hit the late 60s, which is kind of your, your ad advertising heyday. Mm -hmm. You've had a drink at exactly the right time, but I wondered if, uh, if, if that echoes, you know, does that bring back any memory, any, any echoes of reality? No, and could like, you consume yes, that much says, alcohol? You know? <laughs> he says having a drink of... We didn't ever drink, is the irony. I don't know that we... Uh, the bosses, you know, the account executives always had drink because they had to entertain their clients, and that was actually quite normal creative people we kind of didn't really we were quite well first of all we were all incredibly young that's the other thing you know when I started at CDP which is probably the best agency at the time I was um, in my early 20s Charles Saatchi was a year older than me David Putnam was two years older all in our early 20s and we were being very well paid and we were doing really terrific work and I don't know that it's harder and harder now for people to be able to make their mark so young every time there's a new series of Mad Men we all, all of us old guys get wheeled out to do yet another documentary on the golden days of British advertising, you know. And so I think that um, then you look back on it and you think, you know, like all golden days, no one, when you're, when you're involved in it, you never think of it as being anything special. We were the first and therefore it was easier. And therefore we did really good, fresh, original work, which uh, is harder and harder to do now, you know. And at, at that time we had the freedom to do it. And Sir Alan, you were the director of 14 fantastic films, but I learned today one film you might have directed but ended up not doing so was Harry, the first Harry Potter. I did, you know, I messed it up. I, just, I messed up the interview, yeah. I wasn't very, very smart of me, really, considering how much money the films made. <laughs> Sir Alan Parker, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Shazam Chief Executive Rich Riley. Rich. Thanks for coming, how are you? Great to be here, doing, doing very well. Tell us all about Shazam, where are you right now? So Shazam currently has over 325 million users around the world. We're very excited, we just released a new iPad app, just released a new uh, update to our um, iPhone application just this week, and so we're adding about 10 million users every month and continuing to add more and more music functionality and increasingly enabling people to Shazam their TVs. Well, I know you most as a, as a uh, device I use to recognize music that I'm, I'm too old to know yes. uh, firsthand. Uh, but you mentioned TV there. How, how are you getting into the TV arena? We recognize about 10 million different songs every day, people actually pushing the Shazam button for music identification. And what we've seen is, is people wanting to Shazam their TV for the music that's on the TV, and increasingly, and one of the reasons we're, we're here in, in Cannes talking to advertisers is 
what about making TV ads Shazamable? And so we've been we've been at this for for some time. We've done over 250 campaigns so far for over 150 advertisers. And what we found is that users want to engage with TV ads, and Shazam's a great way to do that. They've already got the app. It's one of the most popular apps of all time. They push the button, and they get a customized experience that lets them engage with that brand, engage with that product experience. And um, and we're really excited to be talking to more and more advertisers about doing more and more creative things. And engaging with ads seems to go against the grain at a time when people are you know skip through on their on their PVRs and just get back to their favorite show. Yep. So how do you encourage to stop them? What, what's the benefit? What are they getting back by taking exactly. the time out to, to Shazam the ad? Exactly. Well, one, we make it very clear that the ad is Shazamable, and then the, there's got to be something in it for the consumer. And so, for example, one we're running right now with Jaguar, um, it's the new F-Series, you watch the commercial, and if you want, you Shazam, and then the result that you receive lets you go inside the car, do a 360-degree tour, rev the engine, and, and really an immersive automotive experience for the consumers who wanted to engage with that ad. We also do things like mobile couponing, where you could Shazam the ad to get a discount in the store. We can do things like music tracks, um, additional content, all sorts of things that a consumer might want that would be relative to engaging with that TV ad. But you're absolutely right. It's got to be something in it for the consumer. And a float next year? Well, our ambition is certainly to uh, to go public um, in the not-too-distant future. So we don't have a specific time period on that yet, but we think that's a, a, a fantastic goal for the company and something we're r- racing against. Okay. Rich Riley from Shazam. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. It seems like everyone with a smartphone has downloaded a game of some kind, even me. And gaming has become big business. I sat down with games designer Jane McGonagall to find out how brands are waking up to the possibilities. Yes, despite what the Daily Mail may say, gaming could make the world a better place. In this chat with me and Mark Holden from media buying agency PhD, Jane explains why. Well, some people are alarmed about gaming because we're spending 7 billion hours a week playing games, and that seems like a waste of time. But research is now showing that the more you play games, up to 21 hours a week, the more motivated you are to solve more ambitious challenges, the more resilient you are in the face of failure, and the better able you are to collaborate with other people. You tell the audience today about how we can sort of harness that. Why is gaming good for you? Well, if you put gamers into the fMRI machine, which shows the different parts of the brain, how they're being lit up during activity, you see that the parts of the brain that are really lit up during gameplay are the motivation reward center and the learning and memory center. So you've got sort of caudate thalamus, makes you feel really determined, you'll do whatever it takes to reach your goal. And you've got the hippocampus, which helps you learn new information, develop new habits, continue on with behavior that you've been practicing. So you have this opportunity to teach somebody a new skill, get them feeling really optimistic and ambitious, and then lock that way of thinking in because you've got you know, the memories being committed during the gameplay. So if your son or daughter's upstairs on the, uh, on the computer or on their tablet, increasingly these days, you, know, you don't necessarily have to fret. You know, they could be doing themselves some good. Exactly. And the kind of games you really want them to be playing are either games that are really hard for them, so they're failing a lot. We like to see gamers fail at least 80% of the time to really develop these benefits. And playing games that are collaborative or cooperative or team-based. So if you're just competing, it's actually not that good for you. But if you're playing with a team or you're working together on a social game, it's massively better for you. 
And Mark, you've collaborated with Jane. You've kind of introduced a, a gaming element to your day-to-day work practices, in essence. Just tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so, so PhD is a media um, planning and buying company, a global company, and what we thought would be a good thing to do would be to try and gamify it, so that when people in PhD come to work each day, they sort of effectively come and play a game. And how it works is that everything you can do within PhD can now be done within a sort of a touchscreen gamified environment, from setting up a brief, defining a target audience, setting, you know, role for comms, coming up with best channel mixes, all that sort of stuff. And the better you are at it, the more pings you get. If you want to get lots of pings, you collaborate. And you you can collaborate with someone in the UK who can crack an idea for someone in China as that person in China is trying to crack an idea for a campaign. So it means that work becomes play and and planning becomes socialised and and that's the way that PhD is starting to change the way it works. Are there massive prizes if you come top at the end of every month? Well, it's interesting. Motivation for getting people engaged over a long period of time in gaming is often intrinsic, not extrinsic. So focusing on the internal sort of benefits you get, like what Jane talks about, are much more important motivators and much more enduring motivators than actually having you know, prizes necessarily. Jane, could we extend this? I mean, could you put the gaming element into, I don't know, tax returns or uh, anything at all, something that would incentivize me to get it back on time if I, (laughs) I don't know, beat my next door neighbor? Yeah, the government should look into that. I mean, my personal game development, the area that I'm working on now, is for treating traumatic brain injury, depression, and anxiety without drugs using games. So we just finished our first randomized control study of a game that I created called Supervetter for treating depression. Uh, without drugs. They are very positive findings that make me optimistic that the sort of hacking into your brain with games can help you be happier in your everyday life. Okay, well, there's, there's no game element to the, uh, to the sofa chats, uh, can, but maybe, maybe next year. I mean, Mark, Jane, thank you very much. Sure. Thank you very much. I'm joined by Nick Emery, who is Chief Executive of Mindshare Worldwide. Nick, thanks for joining me. You uh, did a great presentation yesterday, mm-hmm. and, and you were joined by uh, Jensen Button yep. and uh, Ron Dennis mm-hmm. of uh, McLaren fame, of course. And you talked a lot about big data, and it seems that data is one of the emerging themes of the festival uh, right now. To me, Cannes is a technology conference now more than it is a content conference. I mean, it was the kind of content kingdom for everyone for a long, long time, but now Microsoft, Google, Facebook dominate this meeting. And the central issue seems to be about how agencies react and change to data and how they distribute content in real time. There's no lag between the creation of a content idea and the distribution of that content, which there used to be. Now it happens in real time, and that is the fundamental challenge, and data and technology are there as platforms to allow you to conquer that challenge. How does that data actually affect what you do as, as an advertising company? The example we talked about yesterday was the Nike example, whereby for the last Olympics campaign we had 24,000 ads. Now that was um, sounds heavy, but actually it wasn't particularly technical. It was four or five people working together as a team, sitting on the Nike campus, looking at feeds, looking at reactions to the Olympics, to games, to what people thought about a certain shoe, a certain piece of apparel, and then changing and editing the message or the content or the music or how it's distributed, uh, and having a different dialogue with people. So it's much more, um, it is real time, it's an overused word, but it's much more, I think a bit like your job in a way, you, you come up with a story, you post to that story and then you follow the story and it adapts and it changes over time depending on how people react to it and what happens uh, in reaction to your story. So we have to do the same thing, we have to essentially be journalists in, in the way we distribute and manage content. And is there a downside to that? Is there being so data driven? Is there is there a, a risk that you sort of ignore your gut feeling? Yeah, and I think I think the kind of people who resist change will always use that argument because they'll say it's about data and therefore it's too rigid, and our business is about intuition and gut feeling. 
It was interesting what Jensen Button said yesterday when he said that I've got all this stuff in front of me, but actually what you have to do is feel it in your bum. <laughs> you have to feel what's right with the race. Uh, and what they say about him as a, as a racing driver is he, he might not be the quickest racing driver, but he's probably the most intelligent in terms of adapting to the circumstances. <clears throat> so I think our best planners and our best people are people who adapt to the circumstances and use their intuition. And if data facilitates you to allow you to rebel and do different things and provoke and challenge the status quo, then that's great. If data makes you withdrawn and just in the assurance, conservative business with a small C, um, then yeah, of course it's boring. And what else? What can we expect like in the festival? What ending you're particularly looking forward to? Uh, I'm quite looking forward to Lou Reed, you know, if he makes it. Yeah, I'm looking forward <laughs> to having him on the sofa. Oh yeah, good. If, if yeah. he makes it. Yeah, and Annie Leibovitz is just there. So yeah, I think there's some interesting people there. Um, and as long as that, that kind of obsession with stardom is linked to the content. Yeah, so I think, yes, it, it's... It's, it, it is a celebration of our business at its best. It can also be our business at its worst. <laughs> but uh, you know, at its best, it's, it's a celebration of our most exciting technology and our most exciting content. Nick Emery, thank you very much. Thank you. Now, earlier we were talking about innovation, but for the client, that can come with some risk. So what better way to motivate the delegates here than with a talk involving celebrated philosopher and author Nassim Taleb. He wrote The Black Swan. Earlier, I sat down with Taleb and Rory Sutherland of Ogilvy, who are both here to take part in Martin Sorrell's stream. It sounds a bit like the Bilderberg for the advertising industry, but is it? Uh, no, it's much more sinister than that, I'm glad to say, yeah. No, it's effectively, to describe it as WPP's version of TED is, is not very accurate. It's actually an unconference, un- which is an opportunity for people in adjacent fields, which is very, very important, to get together and effectively share interesting ideas uh, of their own. So one of the reasons we're delighted Nassim can join us is we think that the work uh, he's done for Anti-Fragile in particular has some very important implications for advertising. And so it's, a, it, it's an extraordinary effective event. Uh, it, it's a group of people from different fields but overlapping fields effectively sharing their latest ideas. What's important about that is I think the most interesting ideas nowadays actually come from the collision of different disciplines rather than from within a single discipline. I'm very keen to talk about Anti-Fragile, which is your latest book. But first off, The Black Swan, which was published in 2007. Uh, I think one critic said it was one of the 12 most important and influential titles since the Second World War. I don't consider Anti-Fragile, again, as the main, the centre of my work. It is uh, the, the disease, not, not my as identification of a problem, is that we're very bad at computing small probability events and underestimating the role of these large-scale events can have in some domains. In other words, the unpredictable plays a very large role cumulatively. Uh, that's a disease. Uh, the, the cure is visibly uh, how to deal with it. It's an anti-fragile and, and, of course, ancestral heuristics that have dealt with unpredictability. So what does anti, what short, you mean by anti, anti-fragile? So let me uh, explain. This, I, I figured out, I mean, I was an option trader for a long time and uh, specializing in volatility. And uh, figure out one thing, is that this cup is fragile because it doesn't like volatility. If you have more downside than upside from random events, you're fragile. If you map fragility to this definition, then you have some nonlinear response from random events, and you can generalize to the opposite of that would be something that gains from random events, that benefits from uncertainty, benefits from unpredictability. Why is this as important for me? Because it solves the black swan problem. You don't need to predict events you can measure how an event affects you. I can measure how fragile this is, but I can't predict the next earthquake. But I know it's not going to be helped rather harmed by an earthquake, and there are things that have gained from earthquakes. So unpredictability being so dominant, especially today, we have 
to understand how our ancestors got us here. And it's what I call uh, convexity, is, is there are a lot of structures that gain from randomness a lot more than they're harmed by it. And, uh, and I'm here to talk about that. And, and anti-fragile is mostly about a definition of fragility and a mapping of what benefits from randomness, okay? And okay. I gave the name anti-fragile to that category of object that gained from randomness. So this is what, what, uh, what I'm here to discuss. You can I write anti-fragile software, we've established, haven't oh, we? Definitely. That you can so write software so that actually it gains from volatility and variation. Um, I suppose machine learning is a kind of version of that. Things um, that gain from harm. Yeah. yeah. Gain and from um, stressors, up to a point. So what's important about this is, to some extent, the, the advertising and marketing fraternities have been beaten up by disciplines like economics and finance. But in many ways, there's a problem, because economics and finance are applying fairly first-order simple maths to an area of activity, which is human behavior, and more complex than that, mass human behavior, which is real-world and highly complicated. And so there is a question, which is the best understanding in terms of complex systems can be hugely valuable to marketers. It, it, this will take time, but I'm just saying that actually really good people who seek to understand you know, uh, what markets are doing or to, or to design things that can actually, as you said, gain from volatility and variation. Um, the things that survive in, in a complicated world are slightly different. And you, you, you've, you've referred to this phrase, treating a cat as though it were a washing machine. Exactly, I mean, what, what uh, the complex domain uh, communicates, anything that's organic communicates with the environment via stressors. I'm, I'm here in the south of France, my skin will be stressed by the sun and will code for my, my, my system will code for a, a darker uh, coloring to protect me from sun rays tomorrow. So there's a mechanism uh, by which the communication uh, is established via messengers who are activated by stress. That's in a complex system. Yeah. Okay. Like in nature and uh, everything. And we have the, 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 that's the organic. The engineered doesn't have these properties. The engineered, like a washing machine, is not going to benefit from any stressor. Whereas your body needs stressors. Otherwise, your muscles will atrophy. So it's the same thing for economic life and the same thing for a lot of things. You need a stressor and you bounce back higher. People never talk about post-traumatic uh, growth. They tend to talk about post-traumatic disorder, as if you know we have to take care of everything. Yeah. In fact, we're harming systems by, pro by protecting them overly from stressors, by protecting them from competition, by protecting them from other things. So this falls into this notion of the, the great enlightenment mistake, is, is, is to think that everything is engineered and needs an engineer where in fact the organic, the complex system, have different, very different properties. We don't quite understand how they operate locally, but we know some, they, they share some global characteristics, one of which is precisely this dynamic interaction via uh, stressors. I mean, it has huge implications because, for example, lots and lots of drugs are tested every year, but they're tested at a regular dosage. What no one's testing is the second order question. Are these exactly. drugs actually more effective if you vary the dose over time? And everything from sort of what you might say is human diet, even sleep patterns. If we benefit from variation, there seems to be something we're not experimenting with nearly enough. A little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of, uh, you overwork and then you have longer rest is better than having continuous work. Jogging is not as good as sprinting plus walking for example, and which yeah. brings us to that barbell thing. That this is a barbell approach, which is actually, you know, a bit of two extremes is better than actually sitting in the middle. So, I mean, Nassim first approached this as an investment approach, that you should put, say, 80% of your money in something extraordinarily safe and reliable, like 
treasury bills, I guess, and 20%. Inflation hedged. And 20% in high risk. Things with a known downside, a known and finite downside, but no potential limit to the upside. Stochastic experimentation. Now, the interesting question I'm asking is, can that apply to a media strategy as well? In other words, should you put 80% of your money on television because you know it works, for instance, take a hypothetical example, but then take 20% of your media budget, actually intending for most of it to fail, to be candid, but for it to produce one or two or three remarkable and disproportionate successes? And so that's a, it's just an interesting approach that this barbell approach, which you can apply to all aspects of life, actually go for the two extremes, the walk and the sprint, not the jog, for example, uh, is certainly interesting, applied to quite a few questions in uh, advertising and marketing. Well, that's a message you'll be taking to the stream. And I know uh, you've will. got a conference to get to, and we don't want to keep Sir Martin Sorrell waiting. So, gentlemen, thank you very, much. very much. Thank, thank you very much. Thank very you good indeed. Yeah. Now, I'm joined on the sofa in cam by the Diet Coke man himself, Mr. Andrew Cooper. Andrew, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And also here is one of the ad men who brought the Diet Coke man back to our screens, Matthew Charlton, who is the founder and chief executive of BETC London. Andrew, I have to start with you. How does it feel to be the Diet Coke man? Yeah, yeah, great. You know, I was really lucky and, and happy to be part of this, this great commercial. We're such a great ad agency and everything else, such a great script. So, you know, I'm stoked to be part of it and part of such, a, and especially 30 years. So what is it about the ad and, and the character? Well, why do you think it's endured for so many years? I just think, you know, the, the first ones that came out, especially like Lucky Vermouth, that was kind of, it was revolutionary in how, you know, advertising was. And, and it's, it's such a big advert that I remember when I was a kid. And I think, you know, they've managed through the five guys that did it, they managed to carry on that kind of same, you know, vein. But at the same time, it, the new one really has a, a, a lot more playfulness around it. And it puts women in a different place and they're instigating the whole action. And, and I like the fact that the can kind of plays its role. And Matthew, there's been a lot of talk here at Cannes about um, the importance of storytelling. Yeah. Uh, and I guess this falls into a, a select band of ads that have survived through the years are doing, doing just that. It's, it's more than just a billboard, more than just a message. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. I mean, I think, I think the story, there's a lot of storytelling in these ads. The storytelling in this one is actually quite different to any of the ones I've done before. There's a I lot think. of aspects in yeah, it, isn't there? Yeah, there's a lot that goes into it, you know, as, as Andy was saying, you know, not it's just... a short time to put it together. Pitching, it? pitching the girls right, the product is integral, you know, which, you know, is really important. It's the product that actually, you know, connects the two together. So, yeah, but I mean, I think above that, if you're a brand and you've got a bit of intellectual property like the hunk, as it sort of, you know, could be described as, you know, it's a big decision whether to use that or not to use it. But I think, you know, if you use it sparingly and cleverly and not all the time, you can bring it back and if you touch the right note with people it's it's much bigger than just an ad you know it's a it's generally a piece of intellectual property you know it's been around for say 20 years and tv audiences aren't as big as they once were how, how did you bring it back how did you introduce it to kind of maximize impact and what role did social media play well huge i mean huge i mean honestly it was it was a huge phenomenon all over the world before it ever went on tv i mean it it, it launched on the internet we teased it on the internet on youtube it was a huge social media outreach, but the other thing is, is honestly, is just PR. A huge PR engine around this, and I think you see there's a new, really interesting triangle now, which is content, social media, and actual proper public relations, and those three things all working together re really actually is the stuff that really breaks things now. And you know, we had an enormous amount of press just because it was coming back, because it was famous, because you know Andrew was in it and did a brilliant job. And uh, you know it really makes a difference. And if you can get out of the marketing magazines and into you know proper editorial stuff, your audience just suddenly takes off, and suddenly you know the ad was being looked at all over the world. You know thanks to that. Well, I think it's time for a diet coke. Uh, Andrew, Matthew, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. 
And that's it from the Cannes Lion Festival. Hugh Muir will be on hand next Wednesday to cover all the week's media stories. My name's John Plunkett, and you can see all my interviews from the festival at guardian.co.uk slash media, including Richard Dawkins and Jimmy Wales, and of course, the Diet Coke Man. The producers this week were Phil Maynard, Irene Bacquet, Matt Hill, and Andy Gallagher. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.